Uh, Romans 8, we're going to look at verses 22 through 25 in particular, though some of the surrounding context will come into play. Uh, the theme for Advent this week is, is hope. And um, uh, so we're going to focus on that. And the, the, mess, the title of this message is Groaning, Hoping, and Eagerly Waiting. Um, and if you would uh, join me in reading, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. It reads as follows, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the firstfruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Well, the grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of the Lord endures forever. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, open our hearts and minds. Open our eyes to see, our ears to hear. Give us understanding that we may walk in your ways. And help us to truly have hope and to live by that hope which you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Groaning is something that all people have in common. In fact, as our text tells us, all creation has groaning in common. We have groaning in common because we have suffering in common. Suffering is something that everyone experiences. One, one headline reporting the, on the collapse, as you may recall, of the condo tower in Miami in June of this past year, or this year, uh, the, the headline read this way, it says, Security footage from inside Florida condo captures moments just before collapse as debris rains and building groans. From the building just before it crumbles to the ground 12 stories below. A deep groaning. Creation groans. What was your response when you heard about that condo collapse? Did you groan? I did. And I do every time I watch the evening news. The other night, Donna let out an audible groan upon hearing about the abuse of a two-year-old within hours of being reunited with his mother. I had done the same thing when I heard about it earlier in the day. What are the things that cause you to groan? I wouldn't pretend to know all of those things, but for some, maybe it's the loss of a child or the loss of a parent, the brokenness of the world? Is it your relationship with your spouse, or is there no relationship at all? Adolescent children rejecting the good that you so long for them to have. Maybe it's a lost job, or a cruel boss, or lost peace, or security, or a sense of safety. Is it never having enough to get to the next paycheck? 
Another cause for groaning is that you see others suffering. Maybe you aren't, but you look upon others and you see their suffering, and that causes you to groan. Have you ever thought of, of God as groaning? Well, apparently he does. For the very next verse after our text informs us that the Spirit intercedes with us or for us with groans. You see, God longs for the restoration of all things even more than we do. Whatever is causing you to groan, very likely is causing God to groan as well. Our text raises some, some questions, at least for me, maybe for you. First off, why, why has the whole creation been groaning? That would be maybe an obvious question, is why, why has it been groaning? And then, why do we who have been given the Spirit groan? Why, why do we who have been given the Spirit groan? Why do, why do Christians groan? What is our hope, and how does it help our groaning? And then how do we wait? I mean, we've got to wait, so how, how is it that we wait? So we're going to explore the answers to those kinds of questions under three headings. First, why all this groaning? Second, for what do we hope? And thirdly, how do we wait? And so if you would join me under that first heading. Why all this groaning? We groan because we are waiting. And we wait in a world that is not as it should be. The earth groans and we groan. We, we groan because of suffering. In verse 18, it says we groan because of the sufferings of this present time. The time we live in is filled with groaning. And so we groan because of this present time. Creation groans because while it waits for the revealing of the sons of God, well, there's suffering that happens. It is still subjected to futility. That's also called the bondage to corruption or the bondage to decay, depending on your translation. All creation, in other words, is spiraling downward toward death. We groan. The whole creation, ourselves included, groan as if the pains of childbirth, as if in the pains of childbirth, longing for something good that is coming, but feeling that we cannot take it any longer. We groan. We groan because we're waiting for the coming of the kingdom of God. If you want to put it simply, we're waiting for the coming in fullness of the kingdom of God. That's why we groan. The psalmist, psalmists, there are several of them, the psalmist understood groaning. Psalm 9, for instance, describes that for which we long. Now, it's interesting because Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 sit, in, in effect, in contrast to one another. Psalm 10 is, is, is a psalm wherein now the wicked prosper. Now God is, uh, uh, there, or now there is a time of trouble while God stands far off. He stands far off. Psalm, psalm 10 is a psalm of groaning. Psalm 9 on the other hand, is a psalm of thanksgiving and praise and speaks as if God's kingdom has fully come. 
That is what we long for. And when we set it in contrast to our earthly experience, we groan. Psalm 9 verse 4 describes what the kingdom of God and fullness is like. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. Or verses 7 through 9. But the Lord sits sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Or how about verse 18? For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. When God's kingdom fully comes, the needy are not forgotten. But we live in a world where we might ask, God, why do you stand far off? And therefore we groan. In the words of Neil Plantinga, The coming of God's redemption means justice is coming, liberation is coming, the king of all the earth is coming. Thanks be to God. That is what we hope for. Plantinga goes on to explain that the needy and the poor long for the kingdom of God even if they don't know it. Even if they don't know it. Jesus Christ as king is what the needy, the oppressed, the poor, the downtrodden long for, even if they think that they long for a winning lottery ticket or just one more bottle of whiskey or another painkiller or socialism or Marxism or more capitalism in a free market. We long for what only God's king or God as king can bring. When life stinks... We long for the coming of God. But when our own little empires are doing well, when the economy is bullish on our future, not so much. We might prefer that it wait a little while. I'm reminded of my oldest brother, um, who's not here, so he can't beat me up for sharing this. Uh, (laughs) All the way from the middle of Missouri. Uh, Besides, I'm still faster than he is. Um, But, but, but when he was um, between his junior and, and senior year of, of university over there and, and, and spent time, well, she went home to Austria for the summer, and, and he was back in Arkansas uh, for, for the summer. And by the time the two and a half months has expired and she's going to be landing in Chicago O'Hare coming in to get back to school, he drives up to Chicago, and as he's As he's waiting for that plane to arrive, it suddenly dawns on him the question, what if the Lord chooses to come back right now? And he's like, okay, I'm going to go out on the runway and I'm going to say, Lord, no, go to Japan first, start there. I need to see her get off that plane before you come back. We often want things to wait, don't we? By the way, they got married and still are and... You know, number of uh, nieces and nephews from them. So, Advent is a good time to reflect on whether we are longing for God's reign or quite content with substitutes. Groaning is something we have in common with all of humanity and is therefore a connecting point for the gospel. It's a connecting point for the gospel. 
This is important to remember. If, if you're looking for gospel opportunities to engage in our conversational evangelism, as we've been talking about here, we had a, a Saturday class on that recently, then listen for expressions of groaning. It's, it's not an opportunity. When you hear groaning, it's, it's not an opportunity to tell people that they need to stop complaining or they need to be thankful. Or maybe insert how you're thankful and you don't complain so that they can see how self-righteous you are and that's really going to be helpful for the advance of the gospel. No. <laughs> don't immediately or, or dismissively talk about how Jesus is what they need either. That's not listening. It's opportunism. It's, well, it's rude. Keep listening. Ask questions. Understand why they groan more clearly. Then speak about your own groaning and why you groan. After all, the Bible tells you you groan right here in our text, so it's okay. And then you can talk about why you have hope. And when they understand why you have hope, maybe they'll begin to see ways that they can have hope and, and open up a dialogue about that. Along with all creation, we eagerly wait for something, and that something is our hope, the coming in fullness of God's kingdom. Amen? Amen. Secondly, for what do we Christians hope? Look at verse 24 again, if you would. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? For what do we hope? For what do we Christians hope? Well, in a sense, we've already answered this. In short, if we groan because of the delay of or the present absence of the rule of God as king, then our hope, and the only hope that could truly satisfy, is for the fullness of the rule of God as king. Amen? So that's the object of our hope. More specifically, our, our hope is the transformation of the world through the transformation of the sons of God by the reign of Jesus as King. I'm going to say that again. Our hope is the transformation of the world through the transformation of the sons or children of God by the reign of Jesus as King. So our hope is that, if I take it in reverse order, that because Jesus reigns over us, that we will be transformed by that reign, and that our being transformed will begin to transform the world, not in full yet, but one day when He returns in full. We see this in what precedes our text. So follow me. Give me, give me a minute of just kind of exegeting the text so that you can understand where I get this from. In the text. So if you look in Romans 8, back up to verse 18, it speaks of the glory to be revealed. The NIV puts it in us. The natural reading is not to us, and the context fits in us. So I'm going to go with in us. The glory to be revealed in us. That's the glory revealed in us that verse 20 and 21 are speaking about as the hope of creation. The freedom of the glory of the children of God. A freedom 
that will one day be fully manifest when, as in our text, verse 23 puts it, even our created bodies will be redeemed so that the glory of the children of God is no longer hindered by its incompleteness. We'll, we'll be fully redeemed from our bondage to corruption, the redemption of our bodies. Isaiah speaks of a transformation of creation. In Isaiah 35, for instance, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like a crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. But even for Isaiah, this transformation of creation is tied to the transformation of people. Because then in verse 5 through 7 it reads, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water, and the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. The blind seeing, the lame walking, the deaf man hearing, the mute unstopped. That is the, the channel through which transformation of the rest of creation occurs. Creation is longing for the revealing of the sons of God, as our text says. It's longing for that. Isaiah 65, words that probably will sound familiar to many of you. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever And that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be, to be a gladness. Note the people connection again. Not just a new heaven and a new earth, but the people are created. If anyone is in Christ, he's... New creation. It's referencing these verses in Isaiah. Verse 19, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. And all of these promises about the transformation of creation and the people in it, and through them the transformation of creation, all those promises are connected we could argue our head between Isaiah 6 and 9, but it's 9. Sorry. I'm, I'm going to school tomorrow, so I'll be able to talk next week. Um, <laughs> it'll be good. Um, of whose reign it is said that of its increase there will be no end, and that it would be established and upheld with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. It's that promise that has the effect of the transformation of the world, and it's that child given that was incarnated 2,000 years ago. The Apostle John in Revelation speaks about the new heaven and new earth that Isaiah had written about, but here he gives us a little more. He says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was, on, he, he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Notice that it doesn't say, Behold, I will make all things new. It says, Behold, I am making all things new. This isn't something that starts someday in the future. This is something that long ago started with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's making all things new, and it begins with his people. It started with his son, and now all the brothers and sisters that are raised in him to new life. The kingdom surely came in the first coming of Jesus, but it comes yet still as we, his loyal subjects, do his will in earth as it is in heaven. In so doing, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven from God. This is the glorious freedom of the children of God. Creation waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation isn't waiting for one day far off in the future when there's some curtain pulled back and, oh, that's who they are. That's not what that means. Creation is waiting for us to begin to live in the reign of Jesus Christ so that it will be evident that we are the sons of God and in that revealing it begins to have restoration. In other words, don't keep it waiting. See, that's our disobedience that keeps it waiting. Don't keep it waiting. Don't keep it waiting. When we grasp this hope, we might understand why Karl Barth said this. He said, Christianity is holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, completely, holy and entirely eschatology, not just an appendix. It is hope. A vista, a forward direction, and it is hence a new departure and a transformation of the present. You see, there's a, there's a certain problem with this word, and you might be thinking, I don't even know the word, so why are you going to introduce me to a word that is a problem already? But it's a word that we have to grapple with because it's the word eschatology, which is the study of end things or some people end times. The study of the end, the eschaton, the end, the fulfillment, if you will. There's a certain problem with the word the way we think of it as the end because, well, Christianity, for Christianity, the end is only the beginning. So it's maybe a study of the beginning as much as a study of the end. Christianity begins in a tomb, so to speak, and it bursts forth in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore, John could speak, for instance, of the martyrs. Now, martyrs, just for the record, are those who have been killed for their faith. They're now physically dead. Okay? And he could speak of the martyrs as being victorious. Now, who in this world would think that? They got killed for their faith. And John says, and they're victorious. Why? Because they love not their lives even unto death. The word of their testimony. You have to take our, your brain and just kind of go, 
twist it around, to begin to wrap it around that kind of thinking. But that's because our lives as believers begins in a tomb and the coming out of that tomb in Jesus Christ. You see, our hope is one that cannot be stopped by all the evils that humanity perpetrates against each other. Christianity is hope. Hope in what has begun and will be fully manifest. It's not just an end or even a future, but a present that is becoming a future. The hope for the reign of God as king in Jesus cannot be snuffed out, even with death, because it begins in the resurrection. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's last recorded words as he was led to his execution at Flossenburg to, uh, to his prison mate, Payne Best, they illustrate this point well. He says, this is the end. For, for me, the beginning of life. Does this hope make a difference? Does it make a difference? I might argue that if not, then it is not truly this hope. For this hope transforms how we wait. And that's our third heading, how we wait. So how do we wait? Well, we read in our, our text, verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Earlier, I referenced a, a quote from Neil Plantinga about the coming of God's redemption and what it means. In that same piece, he references something that Lewis Smedes wrote in his Not the Hardest. The hardest part for people who believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ, listen, the hardest part for people who believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ is in living the sort of life that makes people say, oh, so that's how people are going to live when righteousness takes over the, our world. How do we wait? We are to wait patiently for the glory of God to be revealed in us by living in such a way that people say, ah, so that's how people are going to live when righteousness takes over our world. To put it another way, as loyal followers of the king, we are to live as if the kingdom has fully come already in a world in which it is not yet. We are to live in such a way as if the kingdom had fully come already in a world in which it is not yet come. Why? Because we know a secret. We know the secret that it has already come and that when he returns, all rewards will be based on our living by faith in that fact. All rewards will be based on living by faith in that fact. You see, the life of a Christian should make no sense if it is not for the full coming of the kingdom of God. We are betting against the odds by faith. We're putting our money on the long shot as far as this world is concerned. But that's okay. Because of the resurrection. But 
To be honest with you, there's a sense in which when somebody tells me they don't believe in Christianity, I find that easier to believe than when somebody tells me they do. Because it's a lot easier to not believe in it than it is to believe in it. A lot more reasons to not believe in it than there is to believe in it. We can't make ourselves believe. We can't make anyone else believe. It takes a work of God to open our eyes. And yet we're still bombarded by doubts and questions. Every time we take a step of faith that says, Christ is king and therefore I do what he says, we have doubts screaming in our head. What are you doing? So, honestly, I don't find it difficult to believe that people walk away from the faith. But I'm really impressed when they don't. By the grace of God. That's impressive. What we hope for is not seen. In the belief commentary on Romans, Sarah Lancaster makes this point. Quote. And I'm quoting it at length because sometimes you just can't say it better, so you just quote it. So, follow. What we actually see when we look at the world is decay, unjust structures, and distorted human relationships. In other words, we we see a Psalm 10 world rather than a Psalm 9 world, to go back to our earlier reference. But, But because we know God's salvation in Jesus Christ, we can hope for more than this. What we hope for is not seen, but it it is not imaginary either. What we hope for is not seen, but it is not imaginary either. And then she goes on to describe how it is that we are to wait in this time where it is unseen. She says, creation is groaning for the revelation of the children of God. And she's obviously commenting on our text. And knowing ourselves to be adopted, we can and should make ourselves known as those children by the way we live. The time between the already and the not yet. The already, Christ has come, His kingdom has come. The not yet, we still wait for it to come in fullness. We still groan. The time between the already and the not yet is a time in which the children of God may act, showing the world what God has done for us and giving the world reason to hope for more. We do not have to settle for the brokenness and injustice that we see, but we may reveal through our actions the alternative way of being in the world that God already makes possible. I'll read that last line again. We may reveal through our actions the alternative way of being in the world that God already makes possible. You see, there's more than one way to be in the world. Well, we're in the world, but one day he's going to take us out. Well, there's one way of being in the world is just to live in some sort of resignation. I can't do anything about it. It's a mess. But that's not the way we're called to be in the world. The other way of being in the world is to to live with actions that say Christ is already king. And in his economy, under his new kingdom, 
It's not save, 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 hoard, 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 get more, get more, get more. No, his economy, it's generosity. In his economy, it's love of neighbor. In his economy, it's forgive those who do you wrong. Don't return evil for evil. Don't revile those who revile you. Yeah, but if I do that, I'm just going to get beat up or suffer or this or that. Yeah, I know. We live in a world that is not yet, even though we are part of a kingdom that is already. You see how that works? We suffer, not because the kingdom is not already, but because it's not yet in this world. But we are to live as if it is already. That whole distinction between the already and not yet is only helpful if we make it clear that the already part is how we are to live. Already as if it's here in fullness. And we suffer because it's not yet here in fullness. Then all of a sudden it, it, it describes how we're to live our lives. Okay. In our text, Paul's language does not suggest passive resignation to the troubles of this world. Two words are important to understand in this text, wait and patience, or CSV, patiently. Wait and patience. Wait, that, that verb is to expect anxiously or to look for, as one lexicon puts it, or as another puts it, await eagerly. There's no resignation there. It's... Think, think of it this way. The, the king is coming for a great banquet, and not only are we preparing the meal and inviting the guests, but we are simultaneously perched at the edge of the city looking for his arrival. Or we're ready to welcome him, as it were, standing on our toes looking in anticipation for his coming. This is described in a few of Jesus' parables when it speaks of living as if the king is returning at any moment. Waiting at the edge of the city, looking for his arrival is done in prayer as well. Prayer that his kingdom come in earth as it is in heaven, even as we do his will in earth as it is in heaven. As Bart said, and this is my favorite quote of Bart, probably always will be. I haven't read that much of him, but so far, <laughs> stands way above the rest. To clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of this world. To clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of this world. You see... Prayer is an expression of faith. Prayer is an expression of our hope. But when I say that, I'm not talking about that kind of prayer which is gimme, 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 gimme. Whatever that is, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about that kind of prayer which is three steps to wrestle God out of what you want so that he does everything as you tell him to do. I'm not talking about that kind of prayer either. I'm talking about the kind of prayer that when the disciples said to Jesus, teach us to pray, and notice he didn't say, well, just, you know, whatever you'd like to say to be fine. No, he actually taught them how to pray, and he gave them words which would form the content, the core, the structure of how they should think about prayer. That his kingdom would come. That his will would be done. You could just put in 
by us, the disciples, because that's the context of where that prayer is, in earth as it is in heaven. And when we pray that way, it's the beginning of an uprise against the disorder of the world because in doing his will in earth as it is in heaven, it begins to put things back in order in the communities in which we practice that called the church. Amen? We're to wait patiently. There are a couple of different kinds of patience. One is to simply wait. It's the kind that we used to sing to our children in the song, you know, when they were young. Have patience, have patience. Don't be in such a hurry. When you get impatient, you only start to worry. Remember, remember that... <clears throat> that kind of... That's one kind of patience. That's, he's leaving because I sang, and I don't blame him. I mean, it's one smart guy in the room, you know. Just out of here, you know. <laughs> or he has to go to work, one of the two. And, and <clears throat> Okay, well, there you go. Um, but the word used here is about having endurance or bearing up in the face of difficulty or steadfastness or perseverance. It's a, it's a different kind of patience. We use patience a number of ways, and that's... Endurance is required when we live as if the king is returning at any moment, but he doesn't, and so we suffer. The, the satisfied are not longing for the fullness of God's reign as king. There are two kinds of people who long for Christ's kingdom to come fully. Earlier I described under our first heading one of those kinds, God's full reign... And those are the compassionate ones. They themselves may not experience a life that stinks. In fact, their life might be rather full. And while they might otherwise be satisfied as things are, like God, they groan on behalf of those for whom they are not. They actually take on the character of God who, for him, all things are well and good. But he groans for his creation where it is not. And these people take action. They live the sort of life that makes people say, ah, so that's how people are going to live when righteousness takes over the world. That is who we are called to be. Whether or not our life sinks, it's no matter. As the church, that's who we are called to be. Outposts of God's heavenly kingdom. Amen? couple of closing thoughts and questions. What, what are the things that cause you to groan? I asked that earlier, but take an assessment, if you will. What are the things that tempt you to be satisfied and not long for the coming of God's kingdom? Groaning by itself can lead us to a place that, or, or could lead us to place our hope in the right thing or the wrong things, in Christ's kingdom or any number of earthly delusions. There is a groaning, however, which even we who have the Spirit groan with, indeed, which God himself groans with, a groaning for things to be set right under the reign of Christ. If you long for the kingdom to come, is that longing because your life stinks or because you're moved by compassion now for those whose lives stink? 
In both cases, you and I, we are called to live under the reign of Christ now in such a way that others will see what that coming kingdom is like. I hope today you've been reminded why we groan. I hope you've been encouraged by our hope. And I trust you've been challenged in how we live, eagerly anticipating the advent of Christ. Let's pray. Father, as we remember the coming of Christ, think about that this season. We long for your coming in fullness, the kingdom of God coming in fullness. We pray that we'd be that we'd have our eyes opened, our ears open to hear, to see the groaning that others around us are experiencing, that we might engage them in their lives, understand what they're going through, describe our own groaning, explaining the reasons why we have hope. Lord, during this season, may we be ever increasingly a, the light of the world, a city set on a hill in a dark place. In Jesus' name, amen.